Art is super nice, isn't it? It's also mean and dirty and nasty and, and accusatory, and some people might find it even evil. Art can be all kinds of things, but the nice part of art is the fact that it functions to connect humans with ideas and thoughts and visions in ways that, that otherwise just don't exist. Art is its own language. Language is communication. Communication is always nice. Today, we have an incredible artist with us on the Nice Work podcast, Yup Van Liesout. I've been a fan of this guy for 20 years, and, and, and his output, along with his fellow artists at Atelier Van Liesout, uh, it's like a compound, okay? Atelier, compound. The, the French have just sexier ways of saying things. It ranges from, from furniture to, to, to painting to, to immersive sculptural. It, 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 just listen to the podcast. It's, it's a great podcast. There's some stuff in here that's going to get some hate mail sent to me. That's cool. Um, my views on the Constitution, Yoop's views on, on non-human life. <laughs> that's okay. Because it's a real conversation, and I just hope you like it. All right, that's all I got. Here we go. You, Ben Lee out. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. <laughs> nice to meet you, Todd. Before we get into anything, It'd be difficult to start off really any conversation right now, today, which is June 3rd, without first talking about what's going on in the United States and around the world. America's ugly, never quite hidden racial tensions and iniquities are being mm -hmm. exposed. Are you following this much? Yes, of course. I read the newspapers and uh, yeah, of course, it's pretty horrible uh, that it happens. I mean, it is necessary that it happens. I mean, I really support the... The, the goal. So I've seen some pretty big crowds in Amsterdam, thousands and mm -hmm. thousands of people. Now, if I read correctly, in Rotterdam, that's more difficult because they're trying to be much more aware of COVID and putting limitations on the gatherings. Is that accurate? No, well, no. Amsterdam is, uh, has a more younger or more aware population as uh, Rotterdam. Mm -hmm. So Rotterdam is much more worker city and uh, and Amsterdam is the capital so there that's a difference in atmosphere and uh, so I think um, this kind of stuff happens in Amsterdam in Rotterdam it's a totally different city it's more like uh, Midwestern town in the, in the, in uh, in the states okay all of these race and class divisions in the USA there's no small part of why the super nice club even just exists. You know, I'm not naive enough to think that we can sprinkle smiles and social graces onto, onto three centuries, four centuries of trespasses mm -hmm. and, and make it all better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, being nicer also means being smarter, advocating for real change. Mm -hmm. And so for a couple of years, I've been playing with an idea. And now that I'm talking with mm -hmm. you, I realize that you might have some real insight for me based on, your experience in 2001 when you founded the free state of uh, what do you call it avlville avlville yes and i know it's been a few years i know it's been mm -hmm. a few years since you did that do you mind talking a little bit about that project and then i'll come back and ask you my question yeah so uh, well i started making art uh, in the mid of the 80s and um, 
a lot of those works was about uh, uh, crossing borders uh, between art and functional stuff, between machines and objects and sculptures. And many of the works that I did had to do with self-sufficiency, so able to survive, uh, able to be independent, uh, able to be off the grid. So I made a lot of works like that. Um, so I had uh, an alcohol and medicine and drug factory. I had a weapons and bombs factory. I had a hospital. I had like a lot of, I make a lot of this kind of uh, stuff. Um, uh, energy plant, water purification. And there were sculptures or installations, but they also functioned. And then in uh, 2001, I said, okay, basically I have all the stuff to start my own town, uh, my free state, independent, anarchist, no rules, no obligations, freedom. Uh, so I started it in 2001, out of the blue, <laughs> without money, or a little bit of money. So that was uh, pretty cool, pretty extreme. Uh, the, and that was, in, uh, that was in Rotterdam, right? That was in the port of Rotterdam, basically still in, around the corner of my studio now. So this was it. This this was a huge undertaking. You had a self-sufficient, more or less a commune. You had your own flag, uh, your own constitution, your own currency. You grew your food, right? Uh, yes, we had a farm, and uh, but I mean, it was also, you know, it was not about only try to be super nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was also try to be super nasty or anarchist. So it was not only happiness. It really played with uh, with ethics and morals. So in the free state, there were weapons, or at least, I mean, they look like weapons. Uh, I didn't really make weapons and I didn't really intend to use them, but they were there. So it was also kind of revolutionary. And uh, I think that's the, the value of, uh, especially in hindsight, uh, on this project. It was really playing with the good, the bad, and the ugly, you could say. So all the advantages of freedom, all the disadvantages of freedom, uh, the advantages of uh, freedom of speech and the disadvantages of freedom of speech. And how long uh, did you guys live there? <laughs> Nine months. Nine months. Which, that's a big yeah. art project. That's, yeah, and actually for uh, utopian communities, that's pretty long. Normally they exist uh, only for a couple of days or a couple of months, so it was a good period of time. And the government more or less left you alone? Did they check in? How did that work? Uh, in the, the, around the 2000s, Netherlands always has been like a very free country. There was a lot of, I mean, a lot of people could do what they want as long as they didn't disturb other people. So there was basically a very big gray area where things were allowed as long as you don't cause problems if you're nice together and then around that time there was a political movement a populist uh, movement uh, of a guy called Pim Fortuyn he later was murdered he was really against this this kind of loose rules he said no rules have to be rules and rules have to be obeyed and everyone has to adapt to this because we need to be organized and we need to be uh, super efficient and so on. So right at that moment, I came with my project that says, no, we do stuff that's illegal. We build buildings without a building permit. We have a, a bar without a liquor license. We have a farm. We butcher our animals. We create our own uh, energy. So right at that moment that the whole 
Dutch society was turning around, uh, I started to uh, to come with my freestyle. And that, uh, so I, when I started it, I expected, you know, there will, nothing will happen because everything is allowed here in this country. And um, that uh, this was not so. And actually it started because... Uh, I did uh, some, I have got a lot of press and also in the kind of, let's say, gossip newspapers, you know, not the very quality newspapers, but the kind of newspapers that they read in the city hall. And uh, in this newspaper interview, I said, yeah, the free state is very free. You can do anything you want. If you want to have sex with your dog, <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it's no problem. I mean, if you don't hurt the dog, I mean, uh, I'm not against if you want you're in love with your dog. You know, and then the people read that and they became furious. And then I got a whole bunch of uh, animal protectionists and uh, moral uh, knights uh, uh, coming against me. And then I got a lot of problems. But you did that. You knew what was coming, right? That was your, that was your marketing mind no, with these comments? No. Or were you tongue-in-cheek? No. <laughs> or just no, being the ultimate artist? No, I really think, I mean, if you're in love with your dog or whatever animal and you have sex with this animal, you don't hurt this animal. I mean, it's fine. So, okay. Uh, yeah. This, this is my favorite part of the podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. You, I can't wait for the do comments. You have a dog? You're, you're resurrecting this. <laughs> Not anymore, alas. <laughs> do, you, do you have a dog? I don't any longer. Uh, no. No, no, no dogs. I did very much love my dog. Um, so circling back to my idea, this is amazing. My thought, my, my naive dream that most listeners who are still minds have just been blown will dismiss out of hand is that we can and should here in the States assemble the best minds, uh, people of color and women specifically to write a new U S constitution from scratch. One that isn't signed by slave owners. I mean, I mean, how much fairness can we really expect? Mm -hmm. when our founding papers were penned by people who didn't believe that humans with dark skin deserved human rights. Yeah. I think we can do better. I think we should do better. You wrote your own constitution as part of AVLville. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, I had the, the most famous lawyer uh, uh, writing it for me. Yeah. I'm wondering about that process. Was that written just by you and a lawyer? Did you, did you open it up to people to, to ask what this constitution should encompass? What was that like? Well, uh, I started first talking with uh, groups of people to, to really understand what the constitution should be. Uh, I remember I also spoke to some religious people, which were actually quite interesting about what they had to say about uh, freedom and constitution and things like that. But at the end, I asked this um, very famous criminal lawyer to say, okay, you make me the, the constitution. Mm -hmm. And the constitution was very straightforward and very interesting. Basically, it had like all the, the rights that a normal constitution provides. So you yeah, are total equal, freedom of expression, uh, mm -hmm. right for education, all this kind of stuff that we all want. But then he said, these are absolute laws. So this is, you cannot debate on any of these laws. So a freedom of expression... It's freedom of expression, and you can say anything you want uh, about God, about politics, about people. Uh, absolute freedom of expression, absolute freedom of education and equality. No, there was no exceptions. 
And that made it interesting because like that, if you don't have these exceptions, you don't have, you don't need a lot of lawyers, you don't need a lot of judges because it's a very simple uh, constitution, very simple law. And it's not easy eh, because it can be very hard. Uh, and um, there was only one obligation in the constitution that was like, if you have a problem with other members of the utopian community, you have the absolute duty to solve these problems or leave. So that uh, it was <laughs> a very barbarian uh, constitution. How many I people would not left? recommend it. Uh, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> nobody left. <laughs> no, not because of the constitution, no. Right. Uh, or or, or on, on problems. But, um, but still, it was interesting. Uh, the writing this, of constitutions is, is such a, uh, it's a place where you can, obviously, where you want to bake in the best elements of ideal, I'm, I'm idealizing, but it's where you want to bake in the best elements of humanity. And I think that I was just learning recently that a lot of the constitutions in advanced nations were written pretty recently. And I think that mm -hmm. in the States, a lot of people can't imagine they would equate a new constitution with sort of an overthrow. But the Netherlands, your current constitution is, is 1983. Finland, 2000, Sweden's mm -hmm. 2009, uh, Denmark, 1953, France, 1958. You know, these are contemporary constitutions that take into mm -hmm. account contemporary world. That is something that, uh, well, just frankly, really fascinates me. And you did it in 2001. I know it's a much smaller mm -hmm. situation, but it's still uh, a framework that you build to get everybody to agree how to live together. Would you say mm -hmm. that overall your constitution was a success or would you would you, do it, would you do it differently if you had to redo this? <laughs> no, I mean, this, this only would work in a small community like ours. Yep. Uh, it would never work in, uh, in a, a normal society or a city or a country-wide. No, it would never work. Okay. It's too harsh. It's too complicated. It's like, uh, no, it wouldn't work. Would you do another AVLville? Uh... No, I'm very interested in to making, uh, actually now I'm creating something which I call AVL Mundo, so the world of AVL, which is not a free state, but it's more like a, a large, it's an art center, there'll be an art center where uh, I combine my studio, my storage, large exhibition spaces to make incredible installations, art from other artists, um, uh, residencies. So I will start more like a, a community for, for art. So that's what I'm doing at this moment. Uh, but and that's not a in your state. same location where you are now, no, where your atelier is, or somewhere different? Yeah, well, it's, it's around the corner of where it used to be the free state of Avialville. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like, uh, yeah, on a plot of land next to my studio. Oh, <laughs> when did you know that you were going to be an artist? Did you ever think you would do anything else, or was it always this? No, at first, I wanted to become a physician, scientist. Mm -hmm. biologist, uh, nuclear physicist. I really like this kind of abstract stuff. And then uh, I discovered I have to study really hard to, uh, to become one. And you have to be really talented to become a very good scientist. And if you are not a good scientist, you become a teacher. And then I said, no, I don't want to become a teacher. So I said, okay, I will be an artist. And even if I'm a bad artist, at least I don't have to teach. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so around uh, my 15th or 16th, uh, no, I was 15 or 16, I, I was sure to become an artist. That's interesting, the, your, your, your other careers, because when you look at the breadth of your work, and you're so prolific, you, you, you can spend, guys, go to Youp's website, the, the link will be in the show notes, you'll spend hours looking through work, because there's just so much, and it's all high quality. This is a, a rare thing. A lot of artists put out a major piece every year or two. Youp uh, and his team are putting out so much great stuff, but the commentary in it, it covers health, science, you know, all of this stuff. And it's definitely, you're definitely a teacher through your work. Mm. Wouldn't you say, is that fair? No, I see my work as a, as a, as a catalyst for uh, ideas, a catalyst for dialogue, uh, for discussions, for discovery. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to, to stimulate and to challenge uh, the, the visitor the, uh, to, to think about the society, to think about ethics, to think about uh, technology. And, and I don't do it in the way that I give, I say, this is the way how, how, it, should, how it should be. I, I basically, I show them uh, a kind of utopian way, which always has like a really dystopian side to it. So uh, very often includes cannibalism or murder or uh, the end of the world um, and so on. You, you've talked about utopia a, a couple of times. Do you have a fascination with utopias? Have you studied sort of a lot of utopias around the world and throughout time? Yes, yes, I did, especially before I started my own uh, free state. Uh, I, I visit a, a bunch of them around Europe, in the States. Uh, I read about it. And um, so, yeah, uh, yes, I, I studied it, yeah. And I also wanted to, to um, a lot of those uh, utopias, they were only really, really intended to be very, very nice. But at the end, they always got a, a fight about money at the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the beginning onwards, I said, okay, money has to play an important role. Uh, weapons have to play and power have to play an important role crime and violence so i really mix the utopia and the dystopia from the from right from the start you visited more utopias than i would mm-hmm. say 99% of humans <laughs> you, i'm going to call you an expert on utopia now for the rest of this conversation mm-hmm. <laughs> would you say that have you visited a successful utopia or are they always rife with elements of dystopia it's just part of our well, one of the yang of human one of the more interesting was actually the Shaker communities mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. And um, the, the Shakers were a religious community. They came to England in the 1700s, I think, or 1800s, and started self-sufficient uh, communities uh, where, they, um, where they lived together, men and women, but they were living separate. So they had total equal rights, the men and women, but there was not, they were not allowed to have sex or to sleep together. So it was a kind of a mixed monastery, you could say. And the interesting thing, what they did is they, they really believe in crafts and technology. So for them to make a perfect chair or to invent something like a circular saw or a washing machine, what they did, 
was like proving their love to God. So it was almost like praying. So what they did, they made this beautiful architecture and beautiful furniture, which were like very minimal for that time because they thought like, you know, decoration and uh, is, is sinful. So they make beautiful, very minimalistic furniture, very well made. And they said, okay, we should not use too much material. So they make very thin constructions. And um, so they were very, um, very nice. And they also had like job rotation so uh, if uh, people for example they had a lot of um, I call it orphans mm -hmm. uh, that came to the shaker communities huh? so they had nowhere to go so they took the children and they educated them in a special children's house and they teach them you know all the skills to be a plumber, a carpenter, a farmer, a cook, whatever. Uh, so they teach all the skills. And when they became 16, they could choose to become a full member of the Shaker community and mm -hmm. obey the, the rules that they had. Or you go out. And if you go out, you get like a, a set of tools, uh, carpenter or blacksmithing tools, that you could start your own life uh, by yourself. And in a way, you could say that the Shakers, although they were religious, they were the first socialist or almost communist uh, uh, society. And uh, for that reason, I really like them because it's this uh, mixture between beauty and social. And uh, well, they were religious, but I'm not. But uh, <laughs> right. But anyway, so I visit many of those Shaker villages and. They're really beautiful, and there's only one existing Shaker village with still with living Shakers in it. That's in Maine, um, Black Sabbath Lake in Maine, uh, and uh, well, they are. They started this community in 1700s or 1800s, and they still live there. Uh, very few, like 10 or 12, uh, are still there. Very old. Yeah, I would imagine it might be challenging yeah. if you're. If you, uh, if men and women live separately and your growth strategy is through adoption, it might be kind of hard to keep the population numbers up, right? Yeah, they were very old. And I'm, I mean, I, the last time I visited it was 15 years ago. I imagine now, uh, well, unless new shakers came, there will be very few left. And um, I think it but also was pretty, I mean, in the heyday, they were really very interesting, you know, being into new technology, new ways of farming, uh, new ways of keeping animals. But nowadays, they lost it. I mean, they should be computer programmers now, but they are doing handiwork. Which know, is too bad, because we need, we, we're going to need farmers more than we're going to need computer programmers in the decades ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need a lot more farmers. <laughs> That's well, a different conversation. Depends what they are programming, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you're very you're powerfully thoughtful and intentional about all of your pieces, and I thought maybe talking about a couple of your pieces, since people listening mm -hmm. to this can't see any, um, mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll talk it out a little bit, shed some light on on what you do. I'm just going to read a couple of descriptions, just mm -hmm. on two pieces, and. You can tell me how they came about and give some context. Is that cool? Yeah. Sound like a good way yeah, to do sure. it? Okay. Sure, sure. I'm going to do first um, Equilibrist, uh, which is from 2012. It's a large sculpture which is placed in front of a shopping mall 
in Malmo, Sweden. I've been to Malmo, mm -hmm. by the way, briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, represents a mass of human shapes clinging onto boxes, packages, consumer goods, holding on for dear life, and struggling to keep their balance in the process. It symbolizes humanity's urge to consume, as well as the limitations it meets while striving to achieve this goal. The design predates the current economic crisis and reflects on the struggle, the precarious balance between ambitions and prosperity on the one hand, and the fall which this can bring about on the other hand. This applies both to the micro level of the individual, the macro level of our economic system, and the meta level of society as a whole. Yeah. Oh, cool text. Did I write that? <laughs> yeah, somebody did for you. I don't know. It's, it reads great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a huge shopping mall in in Malmo, which is like uh, on the border between Denmark and Sweden. So a lot of people from Denmark come there to go shopping, and it was very fancy. And they they had really nice idea about about including artworks. So there was a lot of commissions for public artworks, and my was one of it, and had a pretty decent budget as well. And I make this bronze sculpture of like basically. A bunch of people trying to grasp as many boxes as they could by climbing on top of them, uh, sometimes helping another person to to climb on top of the uh, the boxes, sometimes pushing them down. So it was something like uh, <laughs> uh, to um, to get as much as possible. Yeah. In the uh, middle of consum the consumerism. Center. I know the the commentary, yeah. the placement is is perfect, and there's this. Yeah. Um, I know you guys can't see it, but there's this big, beautiful, blue, curving, very uh, hyper-contemporary architecture glass mm -hmm. sort of wave behind mm -hmm. this, this orange piece. Uh, the yes. contrast between that, that hyper-consumptive architecture behind the piece and the commentary, that's mm -hmm. kind of why I picked it out. I, I love it. Is it still there? Or how long was it there? Where is it now? No, it's there. It was a uh, oh, it's still it there. Permanent. permanent. It's it's permanent. Yes, it's oh, fantastic. A, I call it like uh, the one percent for art, right? Uh, program. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, so I want to move on to artist, which was mm -hmm. recent piece, two thousand eighteen. Mm -hmm. This group of sculptures was created as part of the Crypto Futurism Project, mm -hmm. in which Yup revisits the Italian futurists a century later to look at resonances between emerging fascist tendencies today. <clears throat> Uh, using his art to reveal the interplay between utopia and destruction. Van Lieshout embraces emerging technologies from genetic manipulation to robotics and big data to draw parallels between the societal threats faced in the early 20th century and the perhaps graver circumstances we face today. The question mm -hmm. is whether these figures present the position of the artist and the curator in this new world that Van Lieshout creates, or if they represent their position in society today. That's pretty heady stuff. Mm -hmm. so, no, so I was very much interested in the, the futurist, Italian futurist, that was, they did amazing stuff 100 years ago. They were really anarchists, they were really turning the whole art world and everything upside down. And, um, uh, and they also were mixing art with music, with poetry, with architecture, with design, with advertisement. So they were really uh, uh, game changers. And, um, and they really believed in a, in a future where a technology would change our society for the good. 
So they were crazy about cars, about planes, radios, and everything that technology brought us. And they also believed that in order to come to this ideal of this technology that would break with all this rusty aristocracy, religion, and conservatism, they really believed that technology could change it. And with a revolution, with violence, with war, this process would go faster. So they were really in, they were revolutionary. So they say, okay, if there would be a war, I mean, it would be the ideal would come before. And then there was the war, the First World War. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them volunteered and a lot of them died in the trenches, in the, in the Dolomites. And when they, after the First World War, they, they saw Mussolini, the fascist leader of Italy at that moment, also as an example of someone that wanted to have change, that embraced technology, that wanted to break with all this traditionalist stuff from Italy. So they became fascist, fascist artists. And they wow. wanted even to become like the official fascist, uh, the, the official artist for the fascist regime. And the fascist regime didn't like them because they were too crazy, too anarchist. And, uh, <laughs> the fascist uh, regime, uh, they basically were much more conservative uh, in the taste of art. And um, so at the end, uh, uh, again, they make the second wrong choice. Uh, the first choice was the violence and the war, and the second was uh, choosing for fascism. So they, in 1943, they stopped existing. So uh, what's interesting to me is that artists, uh, even though they're very progressive and extreme, can make these wrong decisions. Uh, and at the moment, I mean, that they make this decision, they didn't understand that was the wrong choice. And, um, and I think nowadays we are in a similar period of time. So like in the beginning of the 20th century, now we have a lot of technological advancements. I mean, 15 years ago, we didn't have a, a smartphone. Uh, we didn't have big data. We didn't have genetic manipulation as we have it now. So nowadays, we have all these new technologies, which basically we don't really know uh, if they were going to be good for us or not. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you see a lot of fascist tendencies. So you see a lot of populism. Uh, everywhere in the world, uh, in, your own, in your country, you see also kind of very extreme uh, uh, changes in politics. So in a way, to uh, one hand, by flirting with this futurist and flirting with their dangerous uh, choices, I also create awareness to really think where we are and that we really have to to take care about, uh, about ethics, about technology, about democracy, about populism. Yeah, that's interesting. Just listening to you talk about that, it, it, it to me, well, it really reminds me of a potential parallel here in the States and around the world with Silicon Valley and, and mm -hmm. technologists and the people working in technology and this, this, in matter of fact, it's the name of a book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. Um, but we have really good people, really interesting people in technology working in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley, creating the apparatus mm -hmm. for surveillance capitalism, right? And they, and they really, a lot of them, especially the, the, the Zuckerbergs, uh, they tend towards very libertarian positions, right? Mm -hmm very libertarian positions and, and they tend to sort of believe that, that um, 
well, this new technology was built in a new era, so old laws don't apply, right? Mm -hmm. Old laws mm -hmm. don't apply, and so we have a new breed of capitalism that surveils and turns everything, turns every conversation, this conversation, conversations you're having in the privacy of your home into um, the raw source material that they get for free that they then commoditize, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that's a bit of a stretch there, if I lost you and I lost everybody, or I just want to see the parallel between, you know, the technology and, and the surveillance capitalism and artists and fascism, but that's the mm -hmm. one I'm putting out there right now. What do you think? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we are in a, in, in a time that a lot of changes will, will influence, technological changes will influence our life, the way how we communicate, the way how we are free, the way how we as individuals are being used uh, as consumers. So, I mean, yes, we are in a very, very important situation. And um, nowadays, uh, if you want, you know everyone, you know everything about everyone. So it's, it's a total surveillance. I mean, uh, if you can imagine that uh, someone with, with bad intentions you are really lost. You you have no chance. You are you are a number. You can be traced. Absolutely. They know everything about you. Yeah. So yes, it's a very um, it's a very uh, precarious uh, situation, especially now with uh, all the protests. I mean, everyone doing a protest now is being known to the government and to enterprises what you do and where you are. That they are. Everything is being surveilled. And now uh, the U.S. president is calling out anti-fascists. And there's actually talk of arresting people who have identified as anti-fascists in the USA. And if that isn't a mind blower, if that right there doesn't blow your mind, <laughs> I don't know what will. Not to get too political. <laughs> so for those that don't know, can you describe real quick what an atelier is? Uh, atelier basically means a workshop or studio. It's, uh, and basically, atelier in, it's, in Dutch especially is used for artist studio. Mm -hmm. Originally, it comes from French, where it just means workshop. So that's, and that's what you have started. And how many people do you work with typically? Is it, is it a fluctuating group? Is your atelier of different sizes throughout the years? No, it's since 20 years, it's about 20 people working mm -hmm. in the studio. Uh, it's not a collective in the way that everyone uh, has uh, uh, brings in their ideas. Uh, it's mm -hmm. uh, we we collaborate a lot. It's a very fun group. But uh, at the end, if I have a crazy ID, and then we are going to make this crazy ID. And the reason I started Atelier van Nieshout was that I was really trying to questioning uh, art and the position of art and what's the definition mm -hmm. of art. Uh, in the early, when I was a very young artist, I started making furniture as sculptures, uh, making machines that could be used. Uh, I wanted to basically to have the stuff that I made being designed by the consumer. So I would reduce my role uh, from an artist to a craftsman. So there was intentionally to, well, to, to, uh, to, to challenge art. And so in that sense, uh, so in 95, I said, well, I don't operate under my own name as an artist. 
but uh, I operate as uh, as a studio, studio van Isout or atelier mm-hmm. van Isout. That's that's a good lead into something that I read online that says, uh, quote, the studio moniker exists in Yup's practice as a methodology toward undermining the myth of the artistic genius. Let's talk about that for a second, this myth of artistic genius. What, what is that for you? I, I really believe art uh, has to do with intuition by smelling, sensing, uh, developments, things happening in society, uh, process it in your mind and your body, and then Trans, translating it into an object or a painting or a film or a video mm-hmm. or whatever. So I really believe it's about, uh, art is really about communication and, uh, and the role of the artist is to, to sense uh, the world and translate it into something that people can try to understand, but they will never really understand because there are no words included. So there's a lot of uh, space for uh, interpretation and explanation. So, and that makes art to me very interesting because it's never defined. It's never like words that, you know, you, you, which are clear and you cannot debate. Art is always vague and now people interpret it in this way and 50 years later they interpret it in a totally different way. And that makes art interesting. What about when art, when an artist accidentally or purposefully sort of steps in front of the work and becomes uh, a celebrity artist? <laughs> uh, yeah, good for business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I really, I think uh, art should be totally free. And if an artist says, I want to become a celebrity, and I make very shiny artworks, like let's say like Jeff Koons, I mean, mm-hmm. you should do it. I mean, it, it's perfectly fine. I have very little standards for art. The only standard you... that I have is I should really be satisfied with it. I should really go the most extreme possible. What are you working on right now? What's, what's the atelier hard at work on? Uh, I'm making the, the big project I'm working on for already one year, and it'll take me another year. It's called Disco Inferno. And I made this large machines, large hammers, large shredders, presses, all kind of grinders and squeezers and all kind of machines to, to destroy stuff or to create stuff. Like a hammer you can use to smash something or mm-hmm. you can use to, to forge something, to create something. And the hammer is also for order. So I make all these machines that are standing for change, like change to get rid of the old and embrace the new, or embrace the better, get rid of the bad and go for the better. But all those machines are being powered by very large diesel engines, like this very old-fashioned, very slow, revolving machines that use diesel oil, or basically they use, you can put anything inside those machines. You, you can, um, uh, you can um, use the fat from uh, refined fat, or butter, or whatever, to power those engines. And, um, 
So all those machines are working, producing a lot of sound, producing a lot of heat, uh, consuming diesel. And all this heat is then transferred to a large jacuzzi. Hmm. And at the same time, I'm making another machine, which is called a pyrolyzer. So it's a machine that uses waste plastic. So end-of-life plastic, so plastic that cannot be recycled anymore to be used as another product. So this end-of-life plastics, you can put in the pyrolyzer, you heat it without oxygen, and then you basically distill, distill the plastics. And then uh, if you have one kilogram of uh, plastics, you have about one liter, so almost the same amount of uh, fuel oil. Hmm. And, uh, and then those big engines, they run on this uh, fuel oil being produced from waste plastics. And also wow. that okay. heat is being recycled in this large wellness center, this day spa, where you have a lot of saunas and steam bars, uh, hot tubs, and, um, and that's it. So I create uh, machines for destruction. I create machines for recycling, but they make a kind of useless production. And the only thing they do is to power, to heat as a bathtub. Now, is that something that the public will be invited into, or is that what we're yeah, they, like they, they are invited into. Yeah. So basically, it's, it's almost a strategy to uh, provoke the end of the world in order to have change. So we burn all the oil we have, then we're going to use all the waste plastics to produce more oil, so we can also burn that oil till nothing is left, and then we're going to use solar power. So in a way, I... I show the, the worst possible solution uh, to invite people to use the good solution. Well, don't worry. We'll be, we, won't, <laughs> we won't have the choice to be using oil for that much longer. <laughs> Fossil fuels we, have, are, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of uh, waste plastics, though. So. We do have a lot of waste plastics around. We have oceans worth. Oceans and oceans of waste plastics. <laughs> um, for some reason, this reminds me, just the visuals that I was getting, and it's not really connected, but I'm going to throw it out there as a movie recommendation to you, unless you've already seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a movie called Heart of Glass by Werner Herzog. It's old. It's from the 70s. But it's uh-huh. set in a little town in a, in a um, what do you call it? A glasswork? Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a little village glasswork. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do any glasswork? I did a little bit. Not did a little bit? Not a lot. It's, yeah mesmerizing to me to watch people do glass work. Anyway, yeah. Heart of Glass, Werner Herzog, that's my movie yeah. recommendation to you. Uh, if you have a movie recommendation, you can go ahead and return fire. But Well, I mean, uh, I really love Werner Herzog, and uh, one of the most beautiful films of him is called The Land of the Deaf and the Blind. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's there's very few people that are being born uh, blind deaf and without speaking. So they have basically almost no way to communicate. They have no clue what color is, what, how people look like, how a tree looks like. And then there was this old movie from the 60s, black and white movie of a, a, a doctor uh, who was then with this mainly old people and he mm-hmm. found a way how to communicate with them by touching uh, their hands. So like that they could communicate. 
and that was very interesting to to imagine this this people this few people that didn't see couldn't hear they, they never saw something the only thing they had is black and probably even they know what black is because they couldn't even hear the word black or right. ever right. saw black so they were in the middle of no, nothing so and i think it was very poetic this movie about this people, how they communicate, how they live, try to imagine what they were thinking and feeling. So I'll watch that. Um, you yeah. watch Heart of Glass and everybody mm. listening to this will watch both and we'll all be so much better for it. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a thing where we ask guests to issue a challenge to members of the Super Nice Club. It's just called the Super Nice Club Challenge. Do you have anything? Yeah, I think uh, to write a constitution. Uh, everyone... I, I think it. it's a nice challenge. A, a constitution for your for your personal utopia? Yeah, or for your, the society or for the, the world, uh, what you think. So what should be, what, what is freedom? And where and how we can guarantee freedom and equality to everyone? And where is the borders? Uh, what can you do, what you can do? It's very ethical things. That's it. That's the challenge, everybody. So in your free time tonight, <laughs> write a constitution. Okay, <laughs> write a constitution okay. that describes everything you've just described, post it up on social media, of course, because it doesn't, it's not real unless it's on social media, and then tag Super Nice Club, tag uh, Atelier Van Lissup, and, and we'll take the best one, we'll take the best mm -hmm. constitution and use it in the, for the next United States Constitution. Does that sound fair? Mm -hmm. It sounds really good, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, I, that's, every challenge every week is getting better. Mm -hmm. This is the best one yet. We also ask if you have a question to flip the, the mic for a second. If you have any, do you have a question for me? I have a question for you. Okay. So some time ago, I hear, I think it was uh, uh, Elon Musk that was uh, trying to invent something that you can connect your brain with a machine. That sounded really interesting. I mean, of course. Science fiction, we saw it a lot before, but nowadays maybe it becomes reality. That means that, for example, uh, you could, like, you know, in like in one second, you can upload 100 podcasts in someone's brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you like that because you make podcasts because you like to communicate and you like to talk to people, you like to inform people. So, do you think that would be something uh, that you would welcome? That you Boy. Could, like, uh, yeah. There's a, I mean, it reminds me of, there was a television show called Heroes. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw it. It was probably a decade no. ago. And one of the heroes, her, I think it was a woman, her superpower was uh, if she watched a video of a skill, let's mm -hmm. say, um, you know, learning to be a glassblower, she would immediately have that skill. Right. She could, mm -hmm. So she would, uh, if she needed to be able to like walk a tightrope, she would just watch a training video on high speed. I think she had like a little hard drive full of all of these different skills and she would instantly acquire them. Right. It reminds me of that a little bit, just this ability mm -hmm. to instantly upload a bunch of information. Um, I'm not a Luddite, but technology like that does give me some pause in that who's to say what you're really uploading? Right, and who's to say mm -hmm. what the human brain is capable of processing? And also, why why run when you can walk? You know, 
um, if that makes any sense. You, ever, you, you walk through cities, right? Yeah. All the time. Um, when you walk, you hear dogs bark. Um, you, you, you smell things. You, you see things all in a coordinated time, right, across the human mm -hmm. senses. And because that's our born speed. Our born speed as humans is, is to crawl, walk, and run. And when we're mm -hmm. at those speeds, we assimilate information uh, holistically. Mm -hmm. Even if you get on a bike, you're getting a little bit too fast. You miss a lot of details. You get in a car, you miss pretty much everything. You get in a plane, you might as well just you know, be using a transporter. You miss so much. That's mm -hmm. my long-winded way of saying I would be nervous that assimilating things at that pace wouldn't allow for reflection. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, that's Still, I would like to have this uh, plug at the side of my brain. Yeah, I mean, there's something fascinating about it. I'm not saying <laughs> that it doesn't seem amazing. I'm not. I'm not. And, you know, it, it's, it's like a new drug. I would probably be like, uh, you know, I'd try a little bit. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, of course. Why did I ever not want that? Um, I'm going to say, realistically, I would have a lot of hesitation, and I would probably indulge. Yes. Okay. Cool. So um, that pretty much wraps it. There's so much to get into with you. you know, we didn't cover you know, your vision of the world uh, 100 years from now. You know, if the Netherlands could be underwater, this, your, your whole techno-utopia stuff, we just barely scratched at. I'm fascinated by what's inside your mind, but I'm going to have to be contented with just watching what you make to get sneak peeks, you know, one piece of furniture and one project at a time. Yeah, one thing I'm, I'm thinking about the, about the future. So basically, you know, to get what we want, to get the food, all the products that we need, we don't need so many people anymore to produce it. We, mm -hmm. we, we, we can robotize, automize a lot of that work. So basically, I think to feed everyone and to supply everyone of clothing and machines, we need about maybe 20 or 30% of the work power. That means that there will be a lot of unemployment or a lot of free time. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is how, how are we going to deal with this in the future? Are we going to have uh, a lot of spare time and everyone gets the food and the stuff that they want? Or will it be like a very unequal society where there is a few people that possess any, everything and the others not? And I think the first solution would be very interesting that you, you say, okay, we have uh, robots uh, doing all this work for us. We have uh, computers who just do um, bookkeeping and uh, medical research and we just do nothing. We go to lie on the ba our back and look at the stars and make art to talk about philosophy. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, this is the big change. I mean, we are so clever with all the stuff that we make that I mean, we don't need people anymore for the economy. Right. I would like to think that we will get to the point where surplus time means a better world, a nicer world. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to think, oh, I almost forgot. I almost forgot this. Speaking of, of um, 
big business. Speaking of big business, I have an advertisement. I have a, a sponsor that I have to get out, which is this right here. Thank you, sponsors. That's you, every member of the Super Nice Club. Even, it's a free show. I know it's a free club, but still, you're sort of spiritual sponsors. If, if, if you'll allow me that, that indulgence. So thanks to everybody listening to this. Thanks to every member of the club for supporting our effort to just try to, to, to make the world a little nicer, a little smarter, a little more livable, uh, and definitely a lot more creative and artistic. So thanks, guys. All right, that was my commercial. <laughs> it was Very good. really, really inexpensive production value. It, it almost sounded like I read that. It, and and uh -huh. it, it almost sounded like that was just sort of extemporaneous and not pre-scripted. I think I nailed it. Yeah. Youp, thank you. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. I will be out to visit you. Um, we have a trip to the Netherlands planned. So I will see you one of these days when it's allowable cool. to do so. Okay? Call me. Yeah. Okay. Good okay. luck. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Conversation with Youp. I love the guy. I really do. I love his work. I love what he's trying to get at. I love that he's just not painting a ocean scene or something like that you know he is exploring he's taking some deep dives some big risks as an artist and that is to be succeeded that to me is super nice that's passion right he's passionate about these ideas and exploring them turned it into a career a pretty good one pretty unlikely career that's where artists often inspire me even more than the work itself it's the fact that they're making it happen in a world that more and more and more doesn't really appreciate art other than decorative, you know, it doesn't appreciate the commentary it has because it might be divisive, right? It might be political, God forbid. So I urge you to take a look at the breadth and the scope of Youp's work, his catalogs. And also I urge you to join the Super Nice Club just by liking us on Facebook or Instagram. Check us out. You can check out our web store, check out the website. Just get into the club. Just try to be a little bit nicer. By hook or by crook. All right? Appreciate you a lot and talk to you next week. You. <laughs>